0: As large parts of South Asia celebrate their independence day today, give or take a few hours, we thought it would be nice to look into the processes that led to colonialism or colonial South Asia, be it on the side of South Asia or in Europe.
1: That's right, Akash. Let's take that up today. And I welcome you all to another episode of Chipping Away, where your host, Akash Indurga, take you on journeys of South Asia, its archaeology, anthropology, and a lot of things beyond that.
0: Since time immemorable, what is considered traditionally as the East and the West were connected by a series of trade routes over land and sea which got in goods from the East to the West by a series of intermediaries that either followed the Silk Route or a series of seaways from East Asia to the Middle East. We know this extends back into the Bronze Age, because about 5000 years ago, various artifacts of Harappan origin were found in various sites of ancient Mesopotamia.
1: There are also references to ancient shipbuilding activities and ancient ship types such as Dao, through which we know there was an intimate connection or intimate trade contact over the sea.
0: True, and this not only went west from South Asia to the Middle East, but also east. Towards Southeast Asia,
1: oh, that's right,
0: such as Sumatra, Java, Vietnam, and maybe even further east. So examples of the spread of Buddhism or Hinduism, and even architectural similarities, the spread of oral traditions, is something we see in Southeast Asia, connecting that region to South Asia.
1: Right, and we have examples like the Kingdom of Shailendra Empire or, uh. Kings in Cambodia and so on and so forth.
0: That's true. Who can forget Angkor Wat, Mm -hmm. the jewel of the Khmer. However, most of the links to the east, which were controlled by these intermediaries, reached Europe only through a few prominent ports such as Venice, which ensured that these regions controlled the monopoly to the access of Asian commodities in Europe. These regions such as Venice and Florence grew rich, setting the scene for what would later become the Renaissance and also what we consider today as mercantile capitalism. So various industries and families and institutions such as the Medici, which were considered the first banking community in Europe, had their origin from this trade. We saw the Medici previously in our episode on the museums because his collection was the first collection to ever be considered a museum. So the want of new profits and wealth and associated developments in shipbuilding, which made ships more viable to travel over open seas, pushed a lot more countries and individuals to try and find that elusive sea route to the east.
1: And following this fervour to seek new land and sea routes, the voyage of Christopher Columbus that takes him to the Caribbean islands is one of the important events that changed the course of history as we know today.
0: Simultaneously, as Christopher Columbus sailed west in hopes of reaching the east, various explorers sailed south to go around the African peninsula to reach the east, that is Asia. Hmm. Vasco da Gama was one such explorer who, after going around the Cape of Africa, tapped into these ancient Arabian sea routes to reach Calicut in 1498. This was the first direct contact between what can be considered the East and the West. Soon after, multiple voyages sponsored by the Portuguese led to the establishment of small trading ports by the Portuguese in 1505 and around what is modern-day Kerala. The Portuguese grew in power to the extent that from 1527 to 1658, they ruled over various parts of coastal Sri Lanka. Following the Portuguese, we have the Dutch coming to South Asia around 1605, the Danes coming in at 1620, the French at 1673, and the English East India Company, establishing itself after the Battle of Plassey in 1757. The Spanish, in the meantime, were busy concentrating on their western colonies in Central and South America.
1: So, by this point, I think South Asia is dotted with various European settlements along the coast. I think pushing for a littoral existence rather than venturing into mainland at this point. And I think the picture changes drastically by 1800s.
0: That's true. So, for example, let's look at Sri Lanka. Between 1527 and 1658, the coastal parts of Sri Lanka were controlled by the Portuguese. The Candian kingdom had control over the central highlands. The Portuguese were driven out by the Dutch in 1658 and they ruled till about 1796. The English who succeeded the Dutch in Sri Lanka in 1796 focused along the coast till 1815. In 1815, they defeated the Candian kingdom and took over all of what is Sri Lanka until their independence in 1948. Similarly, in mainland South Asia, the Portuguese focused their presence along the western sea coast, moving north from Kerala to Goa, further north to Gujarat, capturing areas such as Basin, Daman and Diu. The Dutch and the Danes, who were in India, had small pockets along the eastern and the western coasts. The French too, who had some presence on the southern coasts, primarily focused on the eastern coast, which is now modern-day Pondicherry. The English, who were a little late to this party, landed in Surat in 1608. However, the British, after the decisive victory at the Battle of Plassey in 1757, were the first colonial power to move inland, away from the coasts. That's true. Their inland expansion continued under the banner of the East India Company till the revolt of 1857. In 1858, the control of South Asia shifts from the company and it becomes a crown land directly ruled by the Queen of England and becomes the British Raj. In the meanwhile, in 1825, the Dutch give up their possessions in South Asia to concentrate on the Dutch East Indies which is modern day Indonesia. The Danes soon follow suit by giving up their possessions by 1869. So we just have three European powers left, the British, the French and the Portuguese. The French continue on till 1954 while the Portuguese are driven away in 1961 and as we all know the British leave us on the midnight hour when the world sleeps on august the 15th 1947
1: and this historical profile is a great backdrop to use it as a springboard and launch into the discussion of the intellectual or the ideological development during that period
0: this contact between the east and the west fueled a study or a curated study of these indigenous communities traditions and peoples which can be considered as the birth of the field of archaeology, anthropology and others as we know of today. However, this development rooted in a Eurocentric perspective gives rise to a Eurocentric model of our understanding of the past. The very fact that we use words such as discovery implies that there was nobody there before they were discovered. For example, people say, Marco Polo discovered the Silk Road, or Christopher Columbus discovered the Americas. However, thousands upon thousands of people were involved in the Silk Route, connecting regions far east as China all the way to the Middle East, and you had about a million people or more who were inhabiting the New World. So, this concept of discovery itself shows that our understanding of the past has a perspective geared from the view of the Europeans.
1: An extension of this discovery or the age of discoveries could be the process of naming, nomenclature, identification, or ownership, or even establishing authority. So for instance, most of the landmasses that were supposedly discovered were named after the discoverer or people who studied the landform, including the species uh, such as plants, animals that inhabited the landmass. And a striking example is the naming of Americas or America, after Americo Vespucci. So instead of naming the continent of America, both North, South, and Mesoamerica, after an indigenous person or the First Nation person who would inhabit the continent, it was named after an explorer.
0: Or even their own names for their own lands.
1: Oh, that's true. That's, I think, a very palpable issue, even in today's world. And I think same goes for native plant and animal species. Most of the botanical names were assigned after the people from the so-called west coming in and studying these species as if exhibits in a museum. There is no reason to believe that local people did not know of these plant animals or their medicinal properties or their usages or their contribution in the ecosystem. But it was the credit of the Europeans to have it in print and get it out there published and almost put up in a banner to advertise. And since we are going back and forth between the east and the west and the colonial powers or colonial systems fixed on the countries in the east or in the new world, these forces no doubt connected the world and made it a global economy as we know of today. But it came with a price. The latent language or the linguistic usages used to denote this world and the other, or the East and the West, had some inherent discrimination built in the system. And we can see its ramification on different levels, starting from the language we use, or the way in which we describe our own culture, or even study our own culture, history, archaeology, and anthropology, like Akash just mentioned. Even the development of what counts as a scientific view or an objective viewpoint, also carries with it the baggage of this colonial contact.
0: So in order to break through from this binary, it's important for us to embrace the multitude, the multitude of perspectives, the multitude of ideas, the multitude of voices. And if we need to have a way forward, the best way is to embrace this multiplicity. We look at one of these examples by setting the context of our understanding of the Portuguese in India in the next few episodes. So in this three part series of which this was the first, we'll explore the context and the conditions of the colonial in India, especially looking at the Portuguese in South Asia.
1: And 14th and 15th August is probably a good day to sit back and mull over this melting pot of cultures and what it really means to be colonized or the colonizer. Or what really is the global west, the global east, or the oriental and the occidental blocks in the world?
0: So catch us next time when we look at the Portuguese in South Asia.
1: And keep the conversation going. Drop us a line at chipinawayind on Twitter and Instagram. And feel free to write in and send your comments, critical feedback, suggestions, ideas at IND at gmail.com. So see you next time in a matter of 15 days. Brace yourself for some discussion on Portuguese in India. Bye.